0: Welcome to In Transition, a program dedicated to the practice of content communication in the public sector. Here's your host, David Pembroke.
1: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to In Transition, the podcast that examines the practice of content communication in government and the public sector. My name's David Pembroke, and thank you once again. For joining me. Today, we will explore what I believe to be one of the most interesting and compelling opportunities for content in government and public sector communication. It really is a central key to how government rebuilds trust, which we all know is in trouble at the moment. And we'll be speaking to Kylie Cochrane, who is the global lead of communications and stakeholder engagement at Oricon. But more importantly, perhaps, she is also the international chair of the International Association for Public Participation. Kylie's been in the communications business for more than 15 years, having worked in both the private sector and the public sector. In the public sector, in New South Wales government here in Australia, she's worked with Sydney Water the Transport Construction Authority, the Independent Water Authority Advisory Panel. And as I said, she is now working for Oricon, which is a transformation, or I think, or a coming together of, of Africon, Connell Wagner and Ninam Shand. But since 2011, she's been with the IAP2, which is the shortened name for the International Association for Public Participation, um, which is an agency designed to increase public participation. She's been a board member of the Australasian brand, uh, since 2015. And then she became, I should say in 2015, uh, international board member. And she joins me now on the line. Kylie Cochran, thank you very much for joining me in transition.
0: Thank you, and and appreciate the the introduction. Uh, just just a couple of things to note. I am going to reveal my age here. That um, I've actually been in this game for more than twenty five years. Oh, um, it's dear! Just frightening as I hear myself say it. <laughs> and uh, for the last year and a half, I've been the international chair of IAP2. So. Um, been around for a while. Very Zero good.
1: Truth. Yeah, but, but, but this must be a fascinating time for you, particularly in this role at, of IAP2 as governments globally wrestle with this whole trust issue. That we know is an issue and we see it every year in the Edelman reports about declining levels of trust, not only in government, but other public institutions and private institutions for that matter as well, such as, you know, other democratic institutions such as the media. So what is your take from the international chair's position on the importance for government of involving citizens in solving problems?
0: Yeah, I I might answer that question in two ways. I'll start, first of all, um, by giving you a bit of a take on um, uh, what I've named the the social triangle theory. Um, So every single community around the world, whether they're first world, second world, a tribal community, Up until about a decade ago, you could say that the structure of their community was divided into, if you like, a triangle. And at the edge of each of these points of the triangle, one point would be political or the political leadership of the day. The second triangle point would be religion or the religious or spiritual institution or practices. And the third point would be community which most people define as um, friends, family, or or in geographical terms, where they live. And over the last decade, David, we have seen a huge decline, uh, as you say, a a loss of trust in political leadership, and you can point to that in... um, any country, any region of the world. there's There's been a, a loss of political trust. So if you put a big cross through that point of the triangle, you then look at religious institutions and, you know, you only have to look at um, census data that comes out in many countries on a regular basis. That sh- and, and that shows that although people are not necessarily leaving religion or spiritual practice per se, there is a... a a cynicism and a loss of trust in religious institutions. Um, So you can put a big cross through that part of the triangle. So what we're left with then is a triangle that equally represented three aspects of our communities. Now, really, communities focus on or the only thing they have left is friends and family and place, sense of place. So with that context and with the context of a distrust in in government, in leadership, in um, various political and and government institutions, and, and yes, agreed, that could also be extended to media, what we're seeing, particularly for government projects, is we are seeing an automatic distrust, an automatic outrage, an automatic level of cynicism directed at any Um, particularly infrastructure project, but really any sort of policy practice or project that the government is trying to um, engage or consult on. And that is because, particularly in terms of the infrastructure projects, um, anything that is likely to change people's sense of belonging, so that sense of belonging to their town or their suburb or their street, uh, is at risk. It's under threat. And so the reaction is a threat, the reaction is a reaction to the threat rather than to what may be, in some cases, a perfectly reasonable um, infrastructure development. So I think in that context, governments around the world need to understand that is where communities are at. And they're seeing uh, projects and, and particularly government infrastructure not as the way they used to, simply more government infrastructure and, and more investment in infrastructure for, for our societies, but as a threat to them personally. And that's why we're seeing a heightened level of community outrage and that's why we're seeing a, a heightened level of decrease in, in what used to be called social licence to operate. We now just use the general term community outrage. And governments need to, and people who operate in this space, really need to understand that context because it changes the way that we manage the engagement and that we manage
1: the relationships with impacted communities. Now, you talk about this, you know, decay uh, occurring over a a 10-year period. Mm. How, How bad is it now and what can government do to address the sensitivity that you described?
0: So I think it changes depending on which part of the world you're in. If if we look at Australia, for example, I think it's particularly bad in Sydney and in Melbourne, um, in big cities all around Australia, but particularly in Sydney and Melbourne. And and that has a lot to do with that's where a lot of the big development is happening. It has a lot to do with that's where um, big development is flagged and particularly when we talk about things like infill development, and that's government speak for fitting as many houses, people, and things into the existing spaces as we can. And if you come back to what I was saying originally, if people enjoy the the way their suburb or community or street looks like, feels like, operates like right now, if we're trying to fit in, another 100,000 people or more schools or more hospitals or more rail or more road. While some people will see that as a positive, you're going to get many people seeing that as a negative because it is a change to the status quo. So what do they do about it? Um, Projects that work, where we see um, a change or a a difference in the outrage, a decrease in the outrage, are ones that use a combination of factors. Firstly, um, there needs to be an an acknowledgement or, or in my experience, what works well is where we see an acknowledgement that the people in that community are experts in their own community. And I know that sounds like common sense, but for many, many years, we've had engineers uh, and designers and architects almost playing God and and deciding what will work best for Community X. And these days, where I see it working is an acknowledgement that the people in Community X or the users of the particular infrastructure that we're trying to build, if they have a say... If they can have some input, if they can talk about what works and what doesn't work right now, if they can talk about the implications of of what the design might be and, and how it's going to impact their community positively and negatively, and we incorporate that into the project design and eventually the project construction, we are, first of all, acknowledging that they're experts in their own local community, and second of all, most of the time, we are seeing some really good improvements to what we have designed. Because let's face it, um, the people who live, work and play in an area are going to know that much more intimately than anyone who might come along and, and, um, you know, be looking at it from a Google Maps perspective or looking at it just for a period of,
1: you know, a couple of months whilst they design a particular facility. But that sounds like it would take a lot more time and resources than perhaps the traditional approach. Would that be fair to say?
0: I think that's a fair assumption to make. Um, Up front, it would take more time in, in terms of project planning. Yes, it would take a lot more time. Again, in my experience, if the time is spent up front and the time is spent well up front, then it actually stops a lot of project delays further down the track. We've seen in the last decade in Australia alone, and and this figure is just for road projects in Australia, $20 billion worth of road project infrastructure has either been delayed or cancelled because of community outrage. And in many cases, if that that additional work had been put in up front to spend the time to engage the community in what I would say a real way, uh, the the project delays and cost overruns at the end just wouldn't happen.
1: Now, given your experience and your understanding of the context, not just here in Australia but overseas, how alive to this potential opportunity of working with communities are government and how mature are they in terms of the skill set that they've got to perhaps apply um, a, a, a more enlightened approach to engagement?
0: I think we're seeing across Australia and New Zealand in particular, um, in some parts of America and definitely through Europe, definitely in the scan, through the Scandinavian countries, we're seeing that the government and political leaders are starting to understand the importance of this engagement uh, and the importance of the genuine engagement. And when I say genuine engagement, it's not a tick box exercise. It, it's actually finding out, what works and what doesn't work. And and this is beyond the the personal, uh, what the the individual may personally prefer. This is more around what is going to work, objectively work for this community versus what is not going to work. What are the ways that they live, work and play, get around in their community and how can we design infrastructure that um, lives within a community rather than the community having to put up with the infrastructure that's designed and created um, so we're seeing a real change in australia and new zealand you know in our part of the world government is waking up to the fact that that this is it is no longer a nice to have um, it's no it's no longer a matter of uh, when we might engage the community it's a matter of are we doing it right now and if not how quickly can we get it started it, it's 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 no longer an option (laughs) because communities are demanding that. And and there's lots of examples of good projects where the government has either realised that partway through the project or the government has put that in place from the beginning of the project where they realise good planning needs to take place to make sure that they have... um, in government speak, the most optimal outcome. In, in everyday speak, the best infrastructure solution that they can get.
1: Okay. Now, one of the tools that can be used to facilitate this engagement is indeed the IAP2's public participation spectrum. I wonder if you might just reflect on what that spectrum is and how people can use that to- that this tool to, to get better outcomes.
0: So the spectrum is... Um, it, it, it's basically a guide to the different levels of engagement, um, or the different classifications, if you like, of engagement um, that uh, can be done um, by government or others um, around projects and policies and, and initiatives. Um, there are the different le- There are there are five different levels on there, and they range from inform uh, to consult, involve, collaborate, and empower. And it's it's an interesting one. I hesitate there because it's, it it is an interesting um, discussion amongst people in in the sector at the moment in the engagement space around um, is is empower um, the nirvana of engagement, and uh, equally on the other side of the spectrum is inform actually engagement. Uh, to me, however, these are five equally valid. Um, classifications or levels of engagement and it will be the type of project the time frames what we're trying to achieve uh, and and what actually is able to be consulted on that will help drive um, where in that spectrum the government wants to play and what I mean by that is we see a lot of local councils for example looking at collaborate or empower. There there is um, a council in Western Australia at the moment, City of Melville, that that have for the last couple of years done uh, what they call deliberative um, participatory budgeting. It's a bit of a mouthful. But it basically means that they have gone out of their way to say to their community, we have X number of dollars um, to spend on road rubbish and our usual business as usual for the next two years these are our priorities, do you agree, and if you do agree, what dollars would you allocate to each of these? Let's do this together. On the spectrum, we would say that's an empower-type level. On the other end of the spectrum, there are some governments that would say, this is, to use the same example, this is our budget for the year, just letting you know that this is what we're spending it on. Um, And that is equally valid for different reasons. And so the government needs, in all cases, governments need to work out um, where they can engage, where there is an opportunity to engage, what they're likely to engage on, then work out which level of the spectrum um, they would like to operate at, and then there's a suite of tools that come along with each accordingly. Mm. And that can be a combination of um, the traditional face-to-face style engagement with the various... um, brochure wear and, and advertising and, and different, what we call collateral, um,
1: and also digital
0: engagement can be part
1: of that experience as well. Sure. So we'll come to that um, in a minute because I'm interested to get your reflections on the role of content in each mm-hmm. of the, the, the five stages. But before we do that, how successful has that deliberative participatory budgeting process been at the City of Melbourne in in Western Australia?
0: The City of Melville, they um, the first year was a, a little bit touch and go, I understand. It, it um, was a learning experience both for the city and for its residents, uh, but they've been doing it for a couple of years now, and it's a fairly um, well understood and considered process. Residents feel that they have a real say in what Council spends their rates on, um, and for council, it, it's been a, a bit of a learning journey. You know, they've had to go from uh, doing it all themselves and deciding how it was going to work to really um, sharing the um, the decision-making power with their residents. So once they made the decision to do that and genuinely went down that journey, they've found that a, a, quite a rewarding process because what they are doing now is um, sharing ownership. Then. Of those decisions with community because once the community decides what the certain priorities are and what kind of money is going to be put on them if there are community members who say I don't particularly like this um, they can turn around and say well actually the the bulk of the people in our community actually said that this was a priority or a key thing for them and something that was really important so we we are working with um, the majority has spoken and, and we're working with the bulk of the community around this. Where it doesn't work is where you have a small group, and I'm not saying this is the case for Melbourne, but where you have a minority group that um, may be disenfranchised as a result of um, decisions that are made based on majority opinion.
1: Yeah, 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 I get that. That's interesting. And I think the ma- the maturing of the, of the systems and the skills. I know here in Canberra, they ran a citizen's jury around third-party insurance, and I'm not quite sure it was particularly successful in the way that they were able to manage the issue because um, I probably shouldn't make too much comments because I don't really – didn't follow it that closely, but it looked to me to be a – reasonably ineffective process because of the way it was run but anyway that's a you know that's an aside so let's just go going back to um the role of content and technology to enable this engagement what are your views on on the role of content and how can people who create and distribute content work with engagement specialists to get better outcomes for the community
0: i think the key thing that that drives um content for me is is what uh, channel are we going to to actually use the content on? Is it going to be um, an ad? Is it going to be an immersive online experience? Is it going to be social media? Is it going to be your sort of more traditional uh, posters, flyers, brochures, newsletters? Um, and so for me the the channel, the choice of channel uh, really drives, the content and for me what drives the choice of channel is the community or communities that we are working with and their existing choices and the ways that they already um, seek and source and share their information. Um, we Good engagement always uses the existing channels that people seek, source and share their information. If you try and create new channels, in using, um, even if it's using content that people are familiar with, if you're creating new channels that people are not familiar with, um, we just don't see a take up of those particular communication vehicles. And how
1: do you discover how uh, particular communities are indeed seeking sourcing and sharing information? How do you make those assessments about which channels to use?
0: So, a good engagement specialist before they start any project will do a whole bunch of research. Um, and they can either do the research themselves or they can uh, employ um, you know qualified social scientists to do that research for them. and and as part of that, um, they need to find out what the community sentiment is about a particular project or about a particular policy initiative. They need to find out um, how what what the community values generally. They need to find out um, the what I call the community stats. So the makeup of the community. You know, what are their age, what's their cultural background, where do they work, what's their educational background. Um, all of those things help decide or, or help not decide, help us, help inform um, the type of community they are, the types of channels they use, and therefore the sorts of channels and content that we should use as part of our engagement.
1: And in terms of the, what you are putting through the, the particular channels that you decide are the right executions for you, mm. what, what's your views on storytelling to engage the community? How important is it to craft a story for a community as opposed to providing them with, you know, facts and figures and, uh, you know, more disparate information?
0: I think it's absolutely critical, David, uh, to tell the story. Um, particularly when a lot of government policy or infrastructure initiatives and projects are about transformation. They're about taking a particular geographical area or a particular community from one thing to another. Um, You know, if you look at um, some of the placemaking work that's done in the US, for example, where they are changing the use of the space um, simply through their stories, simply through the stories that sit there and the stories that are told and how they then use the space. So a space may go, for example, from a a back alley to um, a really exciting uh, space that has uh, street art and perhaps a cafe uh, and a bunch of people spending time there who wouldn't have spent time there before, if the narrative for that area was a back alley that's not very safe, um, so it's telling the story and telling the story in a way that actually appeals to the people you're trying to appeal to. So again, that research is super important because you're finding out what people value, and you're finding out what really what people emote to.
1: Um, and, and so you you believe that through that research, that's where you discover the storylines that are going to move people to to change, move people to think differently about a particular initiative.
0: Yeah, you discover the information that that helps you create those storylines, absolutely.
1: And what about those storylines? Because in any decent story, you, you know, it can't just be a sort of unbroken line of, you know, and this is great and this is great and this is great. You know, stories need tension to survive. How do you go about speaking with a government client perhaps about, introducing some tension, introducing some obstacles, introducing some things that might be perhaps the risks of undertaking a transformation?
0: So I guess part of it is less of a tension in a story and looking more at the what we call the WIFM factor, what's in it for me, um, W-I-I-F-M. And and so telling the story around the benefits for people, Um And so they can see themselves in that space, so they can see um, how it will benefit their lives, how it will benefit how they um, live, work and play in an area, how it will benefit their kids. Um, And it's telling that story and emoting to people's uh, values that um, really helps those stories resonate with people. So less of a tension and a risk issue and more of a values
1: approach. So in terms of then once you've got the story straight, you know, the research has guided you towards the story, Um, you've understood the community, you've now got that story, you've understood the channel, how important is it to be consistent and how often do you need to turn up um, in a community's life so as that they can understand the story? Do you have to be ever-present or is it a, a softer touch?
0: I guess it depends on the particular project or initiative that um, you're telling the story about. If it's a big infrastructure project, for example, and I keep coming that back to that because that is what we're seeing a lot of in in um, Australia and New Zealand in particular at the moment, big infrastructure spend, both planning and construction. Um, there needs to be a regular touch, and the reason why there needs to be a regular touch is because people are bombarded with information from multiple sources every day. Um, and so to cut through the noise, um, we need to be we need to ensure that we are there on a regular enough basis um, for people to hear the story and for people to understand their place in the story and for it therefore to resonate
1: with them. And what about doing it in more than one channel? What's your advice to people on on taking the opportunity to, to tell that story with various forms of media in both offline channels and online channels?
0: Yeah, that's absolutely essential. Um, these days, you can never get away with one channel. In fact, I don't think you ever have, but these days, more and more, the last five years or so... Um, multiple, if you don't do multiple channels, you just won't get um, get through. you won't get through the noise. Um, in advertising, they used to call it cut through, um but it's more than that now. it's it's uh, getting through the noise of everyone else's messages and stories and everything that's going on in someone's life. You know, um, I, I'm a real news junkie, and so I like to follow the news on a regular basis, but there's some days and some weeks where I can go for long periods of time without, checking my phone to see what the latest news is or, or without, you know, trying to find out what politician has, has made a particular announcement. Um, and, and so even when I'm interested in that information, I can get busy and caught up with other things. So we need to use multiple channels to get through to people who are interested in hearing what we have to say, but also those who are less likely to proactively try and find out about it because they are also impacted by our projects. So multiple channels are essential, and not only are multiple channels essential, but multiple ways of doing it. And what I mean by that is um, a combination of what I call traditional and social and digital engagement channels or tools. Um, The more traditional are things like face-to-face, are things like meetings, um, not necessarily town hall meetings because I find there that the loudest voice simply drowns out everyone else, but the, the traditional sitting across the kitchen table and just chatting with someone about the impact that a project might have on their lives. Um, or a small group meeting where people can hear about what's happening, ask questions and share information, through to um, immersive opportunities where people can have a digital experience wearing, I don't know, 3D glasses and using virtual reality tools. They can uh, walk or, or or experience or drive or ride through a particular feature um, electronically so they can experience it um, in the uh digital world
1: before it becomes part of their physical reality it sounds expensive to put together these sort of comprehensive programs is is it in
0: the context of a spend for a large infrastructure project the cost of engagement is so minute um so minute you know we're we're talking at most one or two percent of a project budget for the big project budgets
1: Yeah. But are the project managers, the engineers seeing the value? Are they understanding that $20 billion figure that you you told us about earlier about, you know, cost of delays? Or is it just seen as, you know, that's a bit of fluff. That's something on the end that, you know, we have to do. So let's just get on with it as opposed to, you know, pouring the concrete or drawing the drawings.
0: Yeah, I'm sitting here smiling and nodding, David. Um, the the engineers and project managers who have had uh, a tough experience with community outrage would say to you, this is essential. This is not soft skills. This is the hard stuff. Um, just about any engineer or project manager will tell you that from an engineering perspective, if there is an issue or a problem, throw enough money at it and you can engineer it out. You, you can fix it. But because we're dealing with people and emotion and outrage, there isn't a magic formula. There isn't throw enough money at it and you'll fix it. it it's an intangible world of, of feelings and thinking. And I suspect, um, well, I know a couple of engineers who try and avoid that world because it's just too hard to understand. Um, but there's many out there who who respect it. And we're seeing that group Uh, grow bigger and bigger as community outrage happens more and more frequently
1: so what's what's next in the in the public participation world you know what do people need to understand and and how can we get better at this so governments can become trusted again can become more respected for the decisions that they make
0: the latest thing we're seeing uh in australia at least is what what is called user-centred design or human-centred design. Um, and, and what fascinates me, David, is is when you put a particular terminology on it, it, it really appeals to uh, engineers and, and uh, project managers. Um, this is not just in the engagement space. This is a combination. People who work in this space are a combination of uh engineering professionals and engagement professionals working together to ensure that users are having a key role so that everything is designed around the user. Now that sounds pretty common sense to most people, but it is not the approach that um, engineering and design has taken to date.
1: But it will you think it will become more mainstream as a practice around not only infrastructure projects, but any other sort of, say, policy or program or perhaps even regulation?
0: I I absolutely see it um, becoming the new thing uh, in engagement for any kind of policy initiative or infrastructure program, um, and mainly because of that combination of community outrage, um, the prevalence of, of social media and information being so uh, easily obtained and shared, and um, the growing understanding of the importance of getting this right, and some people have, some people have, people have different understandings of why that's important. For some, it's important because you know the project managers don't want to see a, a blowout in terms of the project schedule or, or cost delays towards the end of the project. We have engineers wanting to get it right because they want to design. Um, particular infrastructure that's going to work well in communities and we have community people and engagement people wanting to get it right because um, they feel very strongly about ensuring that whatever is going to come into their community is going to work with what's there right now. Mm.
1: Another topic for another time perhaps, another big long uh, discussion. So, hey, just before I let you go, as the global chair of IAP2, what's your What's your goal there? What's your mission? What are you hoping to achieve?
0: So that's that's a big question. Um, <laughs> we're <laughs> we're looking at a whole range of things at the moment, but one of the key things we're working on is looking at um, democratizing engagement. And what I mean by that is we're working with the UN on um, in a number of the Southeast Asian countries and and looking at how we can use engagement um, to Enable countries and communities to have greater say in how their countries are being run. Um, It's a fascinating look at different cultures and different political systems and different um, political realities and using engagement as the enabler or as the tool um, to allow more democracy.
1: Well, there's another podcast.
0: Yeah, (laughs) it could well be.
1: Well, Kylie, thank you so much for spending a bit of time with us today to to look at the IAP2 spectrum and to understand more about this challenge of engagement. And I would encourage anybody listening to get online and have a bit of a look because it does take you through the stages as Kylie um, described them to you. And then to understand what role that content Um, And both content delivered online and offline can play in bringing communities along. Because I think as Kylie suggested today, people are going to have an opinion about your policy, about your program, about your regulation, about your infrastructure project. So I think the very clear suggestion is bring them in early you know, allow them to have a say, bring them, use the wisdom of the crowd, use the wisdom of the community to get those better outcomes. And I think delays, money will be saved uh, and a lot of pain will be avoided by getting people in because they are going to have their say. You may as well have it early. So Kylie, thanks to you for joining us today. And thanks to you, the audience, for coming back once again. And we will be back at the same time next week. But for the moment, it's bye for now.
0: You've been listening to In Transition, the program dedicated to the practice of content communication in
1: the public sector. For more, visit us at contentgroup.com.au.